0: You know I could just go on Never forgive you And just keep on keeping on It's not like I don't have good reason But you are Season after season
1: Hello and welcome to episode 1926 of Effectively Wild, a baseball podcast from Fangraphs presented by our Patreon supporters. I am Ben Lindbergh of The Ringer, joined by Meg Rally of Fangraphs. Hello, Meg. Hello. And we are both pleased to be joined by other Ben, Ben Clemens of Fangraphs. Hello, Ben.
2: Hey, Ben. How's it going?
1: going well. So this is our first episode of the off season. I suppose. Wow. We don't stare out the window and wait for spring around here. We just keep podcasting. So we've got free agents, we've got GM meetings, we've got non-tenders, we've got qualifying offers, we've got awards voting results. We'll be with you through all that and everything that comes after that. The winter meetings, the Hall of Fame season, arbitration, etc., I'm teasing arbitration as if that is something super exciting <laughs> It's exciting
0: that it will be completed before the season starts Yeah, and speaking of the season starting
1: We'll take you all the way up to pitchers and catchers reporting in mid-February And spring training games starting in late February And the World Baseball Classic in March And then March 30th, opening day And then we'll do it all over again <laughs> The cycle begins anew <laughs> And we'll make time for lots of nonsense and interesting conversations and Silliness and emails and stat blasts along the way. As usual, just for those of you who are new to the show, we do not stop. We don't even change our schedule. We just keep going as if nothing happened. Yep. <laughs> and sometimes nothing does happen, but we have yeah. the podcast anyway and yeah. we find a way. <laughs> yeah. But it won't be hard today, because we got a lot to talk about today. And Ben is here ostensibly to talk about the free agent class. He, with collaboration and input from other Fangraphs members, has ranked all the free agents, or at least 50 of them, which is most of the important ones. (laughs) Sadly, I ranked more than 50, because I'm stupid. Oh, yeah. Oh well, you're you're pulling along in Hagen there, where you can actually stick with a round number that, that other people stick to.
0: We're completists by nature over here. Yeah,
1: but before we turn the page to the off season officially and start to talk about free agents, we should put a bow on the World Series, which is over now. So that happened since we last podcasted. There was one more game, and it was the decisive game. The Astros won the World Series. Yep in 6 they beat the phillies on saturday it was a pretty exciting game more exciting for astros fans than for the phillies fans but a lot to talk about in this game and i guess a lot to talk about when it comes to the larger astros conversation which has been raging literally <laughs> raging <laughs> for the last day or two <laughs> I fully anticipate the amount of like stock taking that would be happening about just what this means for the Astros and what it doesn't mean for the Astros and what we can say about them and what we can't say about them. but. I guess what we can say about them for now is that they were the better team in this series. And in that sense, they deserve to win. And a lot of people were saying that the Astros were inevitable, and I don't think that they actually were or that any team is in October. And if you somehow simulated it over and over again or played it in the multiverse, as I mentioned in my article, then I do believe that the Phillies would win roughly 40% of the time. But the Astros made it look inevitable with their 11 and two win to the title and they had a decisive final game so big picture thoughts on game six specifically maybe before we get into the the bigger picture stuff
0: It sure was nice to see Zach Wheeler look like Zach Wheeler again. Yeah, I enjoyed that very much because when he's going right, he sure is fun to watch, Mm
2: -hmm. so
0: that was great. I want to extend my condolences to Phillies fans about having Jordan Alvarez uh, help to end (laughs) your season. I yeah. know how that feels.
1: Um, yeah, it's the uh, the handshake. The Mariners fans, Phillies fans handshake
2: yeah. meme. Yeah, they should yeah. maybe stop with the uh, bring in a lefty specialist. Yeah, uh, against Alvarez, <laughs> who has no observable platoon splits. Yeah, maybe
0: just like don't do that. Yeah, you know? we'll
2: we'll talk about that decision. But
0: <laughs> yeah, but it was very thrilling. Like right up until it wasn't anymore, at least in terms of it feeling like it could be anyone's game. I mean, the Astros are, you know, thrilling in their own way, so I don't mean to denigrate them. But the game prior, we had spent all this time being, like, nervous. We were just nervous on everyone's behalf because it really felt like, you know, we didn't know who was going to win when it came down to the final out. But that stopped being true after that Alvarez home run. They seemed (laughs) deflated after that. So yeah, I don't know. But I think in general, very fun World Series. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I enjoyed it. I will admit to like being, well, not thrilled that it only went six, but like I wasn't opposed to it only going (laughs) six.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Jobs are weird. Yeah, I thought it was a a nice amount of baseball, like,
0: it yeah. didn't overstay
2: its welcome. Every game felt very fun to me. Yeah, mm-hmm. kind of throughout the playoffs, with the exception of the Yankees Astros series. That yeah, that was <laughs> just, kind of a just drag. a slog. Yeah. I think every other series felt like it lasted about as long as I wanted it to, except for I guess also Phillies Padres, which should have gone fifty. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I don't know if it was like a,
1: a. I think it was. It was really fun in the moment. So I guess it's a, a classic postseason. I was going to say it's not like the the best that I can recall. I mean, there were some recent postseasons. They all blur together in my mind once they're over. But there have been some where like lots of games went to the final elimination game, and there were tons of win expectancy swings and that sort of thing. And I don't know that this postseason was was anything extraordinary by those standards, but there were a lot of incredibly fun and memorable games, (laughs) and some of them were high-scoring and some of them were low-scoring, and even within this series, each team got to have games where it felt good about itself and and just kind of walked all over its opponent, and then the mood changed quickly for at least one of them after that. But yeah, I thought this World Series delivered, like, even though it was a, a mismatch on paper, probabilistically, statistically speaking, it was not in reality, and it was a, a competitive series, and it didn't go all the way, but it went most of the way, yeah. and it entertained us all the way, I think. So, yeah, it's a, a testament to the Astros' bullpen that that 4-1 lead felt sort of insurmountable yeah. because... it. Wasn't it? No. Shouldn't be, <laughs> but when the Astros bullpen barely allows a run all postseason long and whatever it was, a 0.83 collective ERA, something like that. I mean, basically the best. Bullpen performance setting some appropriate minimum in forever. I mean, it was one of the best bullpen performances we've ever seen, yeah. which was not unexpected given that this was a vaunted bullpen that was supposed to be a big strength. But even for a vaunted bullpen that's supposed to be a big strength, you don't project a 0.83. No. And some of the runs they allowed were, by starters, pitching and relief, too. So, like, if you limit it to the actual relievers, then they were even stingier. So the Phillies bullpen was great, too, and pitched over its head, probably, but in a more mortal sense than the Astros bullpen did. So it was just a totally dominant force. Just the, the degree of dominance was somewhat surprising, but not the fact of the dominance. So... It was a pretty impressive performance.
0: Yeah. <laughs> it feels like it happened a million years ago.
1: <laughs> yeah. I mean, once once the season ends, yeah, I'm not ready to completely move into winter off-season hot stove mode yet. But then again, most people who root for teams that were not in the World Series have... Been, been in, in that, that mode, mode for, for quite now. a while yeah, yeah so. i guess that's true <laughs> it's like welcome aboard welcome to the winter we've we've been here for a while yeah so yeah i just i find it jarring to go from the drama and the theater and the stakes of the world series and an elimination game to then caring about like opt-outs and stuff like <laughs> that's that's important too but yeah <laughs> doesn't carry quite the intrigue, perhaps, that, that a World Series does.
0: No, but a unique ability to disrupt your Sunday when you suddenly have to, you know.
1: <laughs> yeah, if you're ranking the, the top 50-something free agents. and Who and, would do that? Who <laughs> would
0: do that? Before we move on to that, though, Ben, you said we should talk yeah. about the pitching decision. So, like, let's talk mm-hmm. about the pitching decision to, to yes. pull Wheeler and bring in the bullpen to face the the rest of the Houston lineup. up there. How do we feel about it in the moment? I felt a little nervous.
1: <laughs> I felt nervous. I, I didn't feel like it was obviously
0: be? wrong, but I did feel nervous. Yeah.
1: I didn't feel like this was a slam dunk clear cut decision either no. way. So I wouldn't dunk on anyone who held either position really, but I also wouldn't dunk on Rob Thompson. I thought it was okay and defensible. So it's almost eerie how closely it mirrors the Blake Snell decision from a couple of years ago with Kevin Cash. I mean, game six, one nothing game, same inning, like almost the same pitch count, I guess 70 versus 73. So probably replay whatever we podcasted about at that time and, and much of it would still apply. I think in this case, maybe it's it's slightly different because, well, it, there are a few factors, I guess. I mean, the fact that Wheeler was dealing and cruising and whatever verb you want to use there, we know that that can be deceptive sometimes. Yeah. He, he did look great, but past results, no guarantee of future performance. Also... Even though he looked strong in that game, he had recently been suffering from fatigue, right, right? which was acknowledged by the team and his velocity was down and he was pushed back. So I don't know whether you can just give a guy an extra day and that's just wiped away like it never happened or whether that could have come back to bite him at some point. So there's that. There is also, well, there's the the third time through the order penalty, as always, and Wheeler has had a fairly sizable one, I think, this season and over the course of his career. He doesn't seem extraordinary in that respect. And you also have the Alvarado familiarity factor, because as we discussed coming into the series, there's a similar penalty that happens with relievers when they face the same hitters many times in a postseason series. And this was, what, the fourth time? That Alvarado had faced Jordan Alvarez. Now, I guess it would have been the sixth time that Alvarez had faced Wheeler, but still, maybe you could project that Alvarado would not be at his absolute best because Alvarez had gotten some previous looks at him. Still, probably, I would assume that a fresh or fresh ish Alvarado for the first time in that game. Statistically speaking, I guess, would be a better bet than Wheeler the third time through dealing with whatever fatigue effects he was dealing with. And then, of course, there's the platoon effect, which, as you alluded to, Ben, neither Wheeler nor Alvarez has a sizable platoon split. Right Now— it's still the case that Alvarado is better against lefties yes. than righties, yeah. even though Jordan has not been significantly better against righties than lefties. So you're still getting the advantage, I guess, on at least one half of the equation. So that's yeah. something. So that's that's worth mentioning, I think, even though there were no real historical splits to speak of in that situation. Right, Ben?
2: I think the uh, the kind of untalked about move would just be bringing in Sir Anthony Dominguez there. Mm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. because I think you can say, uh, like, Wheeler, there's a lot of questions about his fatigue level. It's a third time through the order. It's the highest leverage point of the game. So why not bring in your best reliever and kind of patch the lower leverage points with other guys? And I do think that Dominguez is pretty clearly a lot better than Alvarado. You know, Platoon splits it all. Like, he's just their best reliever. That seems like a spot where you should say, I just want to use my best guy. Like, I, he still needs to get Alex Bregman out after this too. Right. And... I don't know if this is true, but to me, Alvarado just seems like a really bad matchup with Bregman, even if he got Jordan out, in that he is wild and has big platoon splits and Bregman doesn't strike out much, and that just seems like it's just not going to end well. Bregman had also, what, hit a double off of him already? Again, small sample, (laughs) doesn't matter that much, but it kind of felt like it played out the way you expected
1: yeah. And I guess you've got Tucker coming up in theory yeah. too. So there's that. But yeah, you're right. And and Dominguez, uh, he gave up another run when he came yeah. in ultimately, but yeah. Alberto had already gotten into trouble. Yeah. So it maybe that is reminiscent also of the Snell cash decision because there were some people who pointed out, well, pulling Snell wasn't the wrong move, but maybe bringing in Nick Anderson was the wrong move. Maybe there were better options. And that was sort of sticking to a script that had worked well for that team up until that time. But Anderson had struggled a little lately. And I guess you could say the same about Alvarado not having had the best World Series. Like, that's one defense is that this was the script that the Phillies had been following. It had worked for them. It was a sensible one. I had praised Thompson for being aggressive and bringing in Alvarado in earlier games, though I guess the situation was not exactly the same. So I think I can kind of see it either way, or I guess we're saying it's it's three ways, potentially. You could leave Wheeler in, or you could pull Wheeler and bring in Alvarado, or you could pull Wheeler and bring in Dominguez. So choose your own adventure. And based on what happened, I'm sure the Phillies wish they had chosen a different adventure, but that <laughs> is uh, going by results rather than process. So it's, it's a tough call either way and regardless like all credit to jordan for absolutely yeah. obliterating oh my God. that ball. <laughs> <laughs> like it was you know a 99 <sighs> mile per hour pitch I, I think it was the the fastest pitch he had ever homered off of and obviously alvarado missed his spot and it was crushable but boy that was <laughs> absolutely demolished 450 feet and you could have told me it was farther than that and i would not have blinked
0: You know, you're sitting there and you're like, is he like. uh..." The real answer is that Jordan Alvarez is just a really great hitter, and whatever like slump he has been in in the postseason is not really like. The thing we should think about, we should think about all this time he has spent being a great hitter, demolishing pitches. But it's like, oh, are you like storing up your energy for maximum like dispersal in these moments when you can just like really put the dagger into somebody's season? It's like, sorry, I couldn't get hits before, I just had to crush dreams. And you know, you <laughs> gotta like a, like a, like a, I don't know, Ben, isn't there some superhero that does that? There's probably some superhero that does that, you know, <laughs> the like dream store. Yeah, yeah, sure. <laughs> yep, that was who I was thinking of definitely, you know. I just made like, that up, but or like yeah. a like a chipmunk with, uh, you know, nuts.
2: <laughs> this is not the right reference, but I'm picturing Ben Stiller from Mystery Men, his power he can just get <laughs> incredibly angry. <laughs> yeah,
1: I don't know, maybe the Sandman. Anyway, I do have to just give credit also to Alex Cintron, the Astro's hitting coach, who did some good hitting coaching, apparently, and I read Stephanie Epstein's story about this in SI, but apparently there was a, a batting cage session before the game, and everyone knew that Diaz had been slumping, and they looked at some video and Centrone recommended a, a change, I think, to his hand position and supposedly suddenly everything clicked and he was blistering the ball again. So I don't know whether it was that or whether that gave him confidence or whether this would have happened anyway, but <laughs> that's, that's what a headed coach is supposed to do. So good job i guess and and sometimes like we talk about slumps as if they're just random or they're just sort of afflictions that kind of come from nowhere but very often At least if you're not hitting the ball hard and just getting robbed, there's some sort of root cause. We may never know what it is, but there was one. Maybe your mechanics were screwed up. Maybe you had some sort of nagging injury, whatever it was. And then maybe it, it might just randomly fix itself without you ever learning what the problem was. Or you might actually do something to correct the problem in this case maybe it was the latter or who knows maybe it just happened but it did sort of bring the astros postseason full circle where Jordan just destroyed a team at the beginning and the end in very painful fashion (laughs) Mm. (laughs) for the opponents not for astros fans it was a very joyous didn't didn't look too hard for him yeah yeah
0: yeah Yeah, that's the thing about alvarez's power it's so easy it just looks Mm -hmm. so easy
1: and then they added an insurance run, which uh, they turned out not to need, really. Yep. And I guess the only other weird thing was Kyle Schwarber trying to bunt, yeah, which well, is I'll kind of already having homered in the game. And I, I guess the the shift was on. RIP the shift (laughs) One of the last shifts That we will see And I assume He was trying to Take advantage of that But it was Wasn't it With two strikes When he Oh yeah Sure was So that's not so good That's not Yeah it
0: isn't It's (laughs) not what He he has
1: bunted before Like he's He's not one of these guys In his life
0: Yeah Like
1: (laughs) He's not one of these guys who's like never laid one down right, successfully. Right. He has some experience doing that. But yeah, yeah with, with two strikes. Mm, yeah, it seems
0: Yeah. Yeah, it doesn't seem like the best. Did your viewing experience of this World Series game make you think that more uh things should be reviewable by instant replay, for instance, <laughs> whether someone had leaned into a pitch on purpose?
1: <laughs> yeah. I guess in theory there's no real reason why you couldn't do that, right? I mean, if you yeah. can review to see if someone was hit, there's always like squeamishness about judgment calls. Right? Well, right, and, but, but, but we've so already things are we've calls, crossed really. the Rubicon, and folks. I, I guess that's Wait, one. What, are, uh, what judgment calls
2: get reviewed now?
0: Well, no, I mean, like we just we allow judgment calls within our umpiring structure right now. Like you, you know, they are making yeah, the a whole judgment thing is
2: yeah <laughs> yeah calls calls all the calls. time. So yeah. reviewing them seems tough. I don't know. I also oh, I, didn't think he was trying to get hit so much there.
0: I ain't gaeling like, into it.
1: Well, I, yeah. I, I
2: don't I think, think he, he was set up before <laughs> the pitch to get hit.
1: Yes, right. He Well, he has a track record of doing that. Yeah. <laughs> he has he's done that in previous post on home plate. Yeah, and uh, I know Martín Maldonado is a silver slugger finalist. <laughs> <but> <laughs> someone, uh, Justin Choi mentioned
0: play. that in his recap of this game, like, as an aside, and someone who has, like, better boundaries with baseball than any of us did in the comments was, like, very confused and thought that yeah. Justin thought he should be a silver slugger yeah. finalist. And it's like, no, no, this award just doesn't make any sense. It's fine. It's,
1: yeah, if you ask me in <laughs> (laughs) 20 years about Martín Like the first thing I will remember is that he was somehow a Silver Slugger (laughs) finalist that one year, and no one will know what I'm talking about. But yeah, he has done this before, which makes sense because he's not actually that Silver Slugger, and also... He was playing through injury, as we learned. He has a broken hand. Yeah. Seems like every catcher yeah, has a broken hand. Yeah, what's all these catchers hands?
0: having broken hands?
1: I mean, I guess it makes sense in that, like, I understand how catchers break their hands. But then how do they keep playing oh, is can't. the question. I, I can't imagine. <laughs> so it's it's not just Big Dumper. It was also Martin Maldonado, <laughs> who broke his hand in, like, late August. Yeah. And so there's <laughs> that. And a sports hernia on top of that. Oh. So, yeah.
0: Well, then, I, then I retract my statement. You you get on how, however. You do,
1: <laughs> yeah, if you're playing through that much pain, like maybe you're entitled to just kind of, you know, finesse your way into one. I don't think it was like as egregious as Alled Miss Diaz trying no, to do it in game one, not. and that's no, probably why he wasn't called on it. Yes, but agreed. clearly, like you know, he was scooching in toward the plate. He w- he knew he was probably going to get some inside sinkers, and also in his post game interview, he basically cop to it i mean he Mm -hmm. he didn't say he was leaning into it but he said he didn't make an effort to get out of the way which is what you're supposed to do and if you don't do that then you're not supposed to keep credited with a hit by pitch but he's hardly the only person to do that i know that some people have seized on that as uh, see the astros they're still rotten to the core they're still finding ways to cheat
2: oh man just wait till they sign anthony rizzo Yeah yeah. 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 That doesn't
0: strike me I mean maybe if we want to talk about the discourse This can be our transition to (laughs) it But that's just like a baseball thing to do I don't feel like that's an Astros thing to do Like that feels like a That's like a light hitting you know infielder thing to do Or catcher thing to do Not a uniquely Houston proposition
1: There was just a great Davey Andrews post at Fangrefs Just running through all the examples of hitters Who've been hit on pitches literally in the strike zone (laughs) and, And have gotten hit by pitches on them, so it 's not supposed to happen, but it happens fairly yeah. often, and I think it 's within the bounds of legal gamesmanship. I was actually mentioning in in my piece that, that there was some precedent. I think it was two thousand and ten there was a hitter who not only worked his way on via hit by pitch but faked. The hit-by-pitch, which is not unheard of, but he got hit on his bat and pretended that he had been plunked and went through the theatrics and the gesticulations and then admitted after the game, yeah, you know, I was just trying to work my way on. And it was actually the same home plate umpire, Lance Barksdale, who was umping this game, game really? six. And that hitter, that nefarious just doing everything he can to win even if it's illegal and pantomiming hit by pitches and just underhanded dastardly deeds. Derek Jeter. Uh, Derek Jeter did that. So, wow. so it's like the so, most
0: I've ever liked Derek Jeter.
1: Yeah, that's it's what winners do. It's what champions do. And that was in a like mid September game too. So what? <laughs> It wasn't yeah. even in
2: the playoffs.
1: <laughs> when did no. he?
0: So, what was the the gap between when he did this and when he admitted that he had done it?
1: I think it was post game. That's was, amazing.
0: Like yeah. that that piece of it feels like a strategic error on his part because, like, if you're gonna <laughs> if you're gonna get up to shenanigans, you can't say you've been up to shenanigans because then the umpires are gonna know that you have the capacity for right. shenanigans. Like, I mean,
2: if it hit his bat, they were gonna figure that out on replay. That was uh That's that, that that one was unavoidable. <laughs> hey, if they institute the challenge system yes and you are the catcher yes and someone gets hit by pitch on a pitch that's in the strike zone presumably yes. you could challenge it yeah right mm. and just say hey that was in the strike zone so it yeah. can't be a that's hit by pitch true yeah, yeah that would be a logical <laughs> Consistency. Right? yeah yeah <laughs>
1: that's a good point
2: oh man I if it's in tra- the strike oh, zone man, it can't so be a hit bad. by
1: pitch right yeah by definition so it's, it's a tautology huh all right That's a reason Mm. to to be pro-robo-umps, or at least challenge system. No. Just challenge system. They're not the same thing, Ben. Just challenge system. Thank you. (laughs) Everything in moderation. Yeah, there you go. All right. So, the discourse. So... (laughs) <laughs> I, I courted disaster with the headline of yeah, you peace. sure did.
0: <laughs>
1: My piece, which was playing off the the drill tweet, yes. was you do in fact have to hand it to the World Series winning Astros. And if you read the piece, which of course everyone does, right. to, to completion would would not think of commenting before <laughs> reading every last word. <laughs> then I doubt that many people would disagree with me. If anything, Astros fans might be the most vociferous in their disagreement. Yes. I was on MLB Now on MLB Network, and Astros fans are in my mentions. They're not happy with me. But I think I pissed everyone off one way or another. So <laughs> the sign of a good article. Yeah, I'd, I'd like to think so. If I made everyone mad, then it's a good compromise. And basically what I was saying here is that this Astros team – Was very good. Yeah. And so you can hate the Astros and you can hold their past against them and you should. (laughs) Yeah. But that this team... Which as far as we know was on the level, and we await further reporting from Ken Rosenthal and Evan Droug. <laughs> there's a an onion article, right, about the Astros crediting whatever soon to be unearthed cheating method they used here. But that's satire.
0: We can't make poor Evan write another book.
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. Good timing for him. He's he's got a book coming yeah, up and fixes yeah. everything. And now there's been more winning. I'm yeah, sure he'd like to update it. I don't know if there's time. But anyway, good sales bump for him. But I basically was pointing out this was a very good team. They were a deserving winner in that they played better than the Phillies. They played well all season. And I was drawing some distinction between the current Astros and the past Astros in the sense that, as everyone has observed, there are but five holdovers from the 2017 team. And yes, they are prominent holdovers. They were not primarily responsible for the Astros' postseason run. Most of the Astros' postseason heroes were newer additions, people who, as I pointed out in my piece, were really no more responsible for the sign-stealing than, say, Philly's backup catcher Garrett Stubbs, who was an Astro from 2019 to 2021, and (laughs) no one blames him for having been an Astro, although he didn't even get into a game this postseason, Mm -hmm. right? So he was a spectator the whole time regardless. Former Effectively Wild guest. Anyway, there I think is something to be said for celebrating the, as far as we know, innocent Astros and for not tarring them all with the same brush and painting with the same brush and doing other things with brushes that we shouldn't do. Because Jeremy Pena had a great postseason yeah. and Jordan Alvarez had a great postseason and Christian Javier had a great postseason and Framber Valdez had a great postseason and a bunch of bullpen guys had a great postseason and they earned it. They themselves earned an untainted title, I would say, and of course, I think people are pleased for Dusty Baker, who won a World Series as a player, but now has finally won one as a manager and has set all sorts of records for having done so, you know, the oldest coach or manager to win a championship and the most games managed before winning a championship and the most postseason games managed before a championship, etc., etc., and Aside from the fact that he gets texts from Bill Cosby and mentions that, I think everyone is is happy with Dusty and happy that he got this off his back and removes the last impediment to his Hall of Fame case. And he was thrilled and people are pleased for Trey Mancini. You know, there are a lot of easy to root for players or at least would be easy to root for if they were not Astros. All that said, I don't know that anyone is is explicitly saying this, but I don't think this is in any way a a redemption story. I don't think it absolves the Astros. I don't begrudge anyone for continuing to not celebrate the success of the Astros who are still there from 2017. I mean, I think the industry has has moved on in a sense. I, I mentioned in my piece that actually 13 teams now have employed 2017 Astros confirmed sign stealing hitters just in the seasons since the sign stealing scandal came to light and in fact only 6 teams have not subsequently employed any 2017 Astro. So they've kind of spread throughout the league and played for most teams and of course former Astros personnel front office people have been highly sought after and managers and coaches and everyone is poaching the Astros. I think we can admit that they are good at building winning baseball teams, which has never really been in dispute. <laughs> and we can maybe hold multiple ideas in our heads, which is that this doesn't like vindicate them. This just doesn't undo what they did. And they dug themselves a hole that they can't really climb out of just by winning. This is just going to be forever associated with this franchise, at least until the very last sign-stealing Astro is no longer on the roster. And that's the way it is. But... The Astros were also just a really good team. (laughs) So those are my takes, essentially.
0: Ben, do you want to go first?
1: I heard that winning fixes everything.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Just covered this.
1: Yeah. yeah. Even, you know, that's an allusion, I think, maybe to a Jim Crane comment, right, where Astros owner Jim Crane, and you can certainly not be pleased for Astros owner Jim Crane, who remains the Astros owner, even though there's a new GM and a new manager and everything, but he told... His team at the time, the only way we can fix it is we've got to beat everybody. Now, to his credit, hate to credit him, but to <laughs> his credit, he did acknowledge on Saturday, I don't think it's ever fixed, and that they can't actually escape what they did because you can't undo the past. And so you can't actually fix what happened. All you can do is kind of keep winning and I guess establish that you can win without cheating, that you can be a good baseball team. But again, in a moral ethical sense, I don't think it writes the scales or anything or like erases the stain so i think we can credit them while also still (laughs) debiting them for for past transgressions
2: i think i would say that you do not under any circumstances have to hand it to jim crane um (laughs) i I feel comfortable saying that yeah i guess rob manfred
1: had to hand the hunk of metal to him or decided to but but he didn't have to yeah
2: (laughs) the astros are Really good. And they won this year, deservingly so, is kind of my view on it. And I don't think that it needs to be like connected to the 2017 team. It's fine. It's part of the the historical record that they cheated and got caught cheating. Mm -hmm. And it's part of the historical record that this team was really great with no evidence of cheating and won the World Series. And I don't know that either of those two needs to be all that related.
0: Yeah, I think where I find myself being kind of exhausted by the whole thing is like, I don't think that there's anything wrong with fans of other teams still wanting to give them the business right Mm -hmm. they've been invited to give them the business by the commissioner right like the commissioner (laughs) said that part of you know how they would be punished essentially was to meet the public and and hear from them and (laughs) they sure do and you know I I think that we could probably have a conversation about the wisdom of that I know that in order to secure cooperation from those players and to get what they thought to be sort of candid remarks about the scope of the cheating and the, (laughs) the delightful mechanism by which it was initially implemented which you know this is the not by any means like the most important part of that chapter of baseball history, but it is really too bad just how broad the the cheating seemed to be that we can't enjoy the banging scheme part of it right like it <laughs> it's already moved into this territory where people are either very serious about it and think that it is a moral stain that can never be undone or redeemed from for the participants or that like everyone should just shut up about it and I was like, what if we found the comedy in between these things because <laughs> that they banged on a trash can is objectively hilarious so that's too bad but i think that like if fans want to boo them that it's like fans are gonna boo them and (laughs) they've been invited to boo them and if the league didn't want them to keep booing them they probably should have suspended some of them right and i think that fans like fans boo players of other teams for all kinds of reasons that are far sillier than like booing Astros who we know to have cheated. I think it's kind of I've said this on the pod before like you know, when I'm when I'm watching a stadium full of people like boo the Astros futures game participant because he happens to be playing in Dodger yeah. Stadium and he's wearing an Astros uniform like that seems not like what I would do in that moment <laughs> because like this poor, poor young guy is just like trying to be a good prospect. He wasn't even assigned to the team when it happened. Like, you know what I mean? So I think that if I were architecting a response to this, I might invite people to like be discerning in their boos. Like I really liked that Seattle fans were like, we will boo Bregman and Altuve and Gurriel and Jordan because he's like really about to end our season. But like Jeremy Pena's <laughs> has not done anything to us and neither is Trey Mancini. So they get to, you know, that's fine. We don't have to give those guys the business. So I thought mm-hmm. that that was like a good way to balance it. I also think that we can find the response of the Astros players involved kind of wanting in terms of how much contrition they seem to be interested in or at least how much contrition they seem to be interested in sort of like publicly performing while also acknowledging that like it would feel bad to get booed at work like (laughs) 81 times a year and then all through the month of October like that that would suck. And it would feel bad and probably have some psychological impact on you. And I don't say that to like excuse what they did or to say that they shouldn't be held accountable, but like we can hold that reality in tandem and concert with the fact that they've been like largely able to get by without facing individual consequences beyond that. So mm-hmm. I don't know. I'm mostly, as ever, kind of exhausted by the discourse, but. I think that you know this is what we were gonna get as soon as these guys didn't face individual player suspensions for what happened in seventeen. Like this was always the reality we were gonna have, and Mm -hmm. I don't know that I don't know that they'll ever not get booed somewhere. Like it, it doesn't seem like George Springer gets booed that much. Like he does sometimes, but it's not as consistent. You know, Correa seems to have largely moved on, Mm -hmm. but like. I don't know. People boo players for years for for decades <laughs> to the point that we like ask ourselves like why are, why are they mad at him again? Like what did that right. guy yeah. ever do to this fan base? Was it an actual thing or was it just that he was good at baseball? Like it can be hard to tell sometimes. So, I don't know. Like I think that it's hard to imagine a scenario now where like Bregman and Altuve and Gurriel will be able to kind of plot a, a new course. Mm -hmm. There's this continued refusal to like go to the All-Star game. You know, we all remember the really terrible press conference they had like on the dais after everything happened. I think that there was probably an opportunity for them to have like a really what people would have perceived to be a very genuine moment of public contrition, but it's done now like they can't you can't come out and be like, oh, no, I was really sorry this whole time.
2: I'm skeptical that anyone would believe their contrition. This
0: is what I'm saying. When has like, that
2: happened in a professional athlete? Even if they did it the day after it happened,
0: sure. But like, there wasn't even that. I mean, <sighs> although I say that, and you know, if you go back and like watch their interviews and listen to their interviews in the clubhouse. After their really terrible press conference, those answers were much better, you know. And those—I just don't
2: think the answers matter. Like the fans aren't going to be like, "Well, I'd like to boo Alex Bregman, but first I'm going to listen to his seven press conferences." Right? I mean, right? And
0: and if there ever were a time that that possibility existed, we're well past it now, right? Like, (laughs) it doesn't matter what they really say now. And maybe part of it is that they are still associated with the team. Like, there have been guys who have signed free agent deals other places. And, like, one of the first questions that they've gotten asked when they've gone in the clubhouse is, like, you know, so about 2017, and it seems like with a distance from the team, they're able to say something that people view to be more real or whatever, but Mm -hmm. I don't know. We don't demand rationality from fans, which doesn't mean that fans shouldn't think about how they behave because some fans are awful, (laughs) awful, you guys. Like, just... Relax about it already. Not about this specifically, but about other stuff. You know, I think fans should think about how they like conduct themselves as human beings because we should always all be doing that. But I don't know. We don't demand rationality in other places, and there was a a real, there is a real grievance here, right? Like I don't think you're ever gonna tell a Mm -hmm. a Dodger fan to let it go and have them go. Oh, you know what? You're right.
1: (laughs) Right. Yeah, you're right that some players who have left have been more open, especially about like the title being tarnished or tainted yeah. or or feeling bad about it in that way. And probably the the few remaining players, they're just too associated with the Astros to ever get themselves out from under that cloud. And they're going to be there for a while, at least Altuve and Bregman. And Altuve, I mean, I feel like he gets a, a disproportionate amount of the blame. He should get some blame, but because he's the face of that franchise, really people hold him responsible, especially because all of the unsubstantiated buzzer rumors right like absolutely nothing ever corroborating that but some people still believe it and because of that and just because he's a very visible astro i think people give him as much grief as anyone if not more and it's been reported and also backed up by the audio of the bangs That he was the least eager to receive the signs, that he did not want the signs. Now, he also didn't do anything to stop anyone else from doing the signs. He didn't come forward and blow the whistle or anything. So I don't think he gets a pass at all. But I think people treat him as if he was sort of the mastermind or the instigator or something when really it seems like he just kind of went along with it because everyone else was doing it and he was in that clubhouse, I suppose. And as a a team leader, he probably should have put his foot down as others should have. But I'm just saying I feel like he gets uh, even more grief than he deserves, which is certainly some grief. But
0: Well, and the MVP doesn't help, right? Oh, yeah, there's that too. You know, I think that (laughs) like if I – we've talked about this before. I'm not like super inclined to booing Anyway, like if I were going to boo an Astro, my choice would probably be Bregman because of the the dugout mm-hmm. flexing after home yes. runs thing, which just <laughs> yes. reads so terribly in hindsight. But I yep. think that the the MVP of it all probably is also a big part of why L2-8 attracts particular notice.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. And Ben, as you said, I mean, I think you can sort of look at this title largely in isolation, at least other than the holdovers. But I guess the the one way in which I, I suppose it could kind of in a convoluted way reflect on the cheating team is if you thought that the Astros were solely a product of the cheating, that they were only good because they were cheating. Now, again, it's such a different roster that right. it, it really still doesn't have anything to do with that team in that sense. But if you thought that, I mean, I never thought that the Astros were good before that season. They were good in pretty predictable ways that season. They've been good essentially ever since. So you really have to do a lot of lifting to think that they were purely a product of science doing, which does not mean that you have to celebrate them and give them a clap on the back for being good at baseball, even though they were breaking the rules. But They are, as far as we know, no longer breaking the rules and are still extremely good at baseball. And and no sign that they're going to stop being good at baseball anytime soon because they'll just be bringing back much of this team. And even though the Mariners are much improved, if the season were to start tomorrow, which would be a little too soon, I think. If the season
0: started actually (laughs) tomorrow, I might take Seattle just because these Astros have to be so tired.
1: Yeah, right. It just gives them a little bit of a rest. But as currently constituted, I guess you would expect the Astros to be back again and we can have this conversation all over again until we all die or retire or whatever. (laughs) So Can we not have it until-
0: can we not have it until we die? Because, like, I'd like to live a long time, and I'm pretty yeah. ready to be done having this particular conversation.
1: Yeah, I'm pretty ready to I like talking to, to you too, but... Yeah, regardless of, of how long I live, I, I would be happy not to <laughs> continue to have this conversation. But, but as you said, like, in the absence of some other kind of punishment, whether official Rob Manfred mandated punishment or the punishment of just being bad at baseball, like, if the Astros had just been bad yeah. for one of these seasons... If they had suffered that sort of karmic payback of of just like being bad for a while, then I feel like fans would have kind of laid off them eventually because the fact that they are still so good, that makes them more effective heels and villains in a sense because it seems like they got away scot-free. I mean, they had some fines and draft pick penalties and suspensions and that made no discernible impact on the Astros' success as an organization. And so everyone feels like, well, they're just leading a charmed life and they just keep winning and so far from being some sort of panacea to get everyone to lay off because, hey, they want a clean one now. No, it's just the opposite. It's like, hey, they keep winning. They get to win another title and they get to keep the old one, too. This is nonsense. We should boo them even harder. So I don't know that anything will actually change. Mm. I mean, after the win, Astros closer Ryan Presley said, I wasn't here in 2017. I love how he prefaced his statement with that. Don't associate me with the side stealing. But I can imagine it's definitely a weight off everybody's shoulders Nobody can say shit now. And of course people can still talk shit about the Astros. And they have and they will. If you're limiting your shit-talking to the players who actually cheated, well, they didn't cheat in 2017 any less now that they won in 2022. And they don't necessarily get to decide if or when people forgive them for that. Friend of the show Zach Cram wrote a piece for The Ringer where he considered how the Astros will be remembered long-term and what their legacy will be. And he noted that once enough time has passed, people may just conflate the 2017 and 22 teams. The distinctions could just get erased. And as he noted, we remember the Black Sox of 1919. We don't talk as much about the fact that the White Sox won a World Series in 1917. That was unsullied. It was sullied by subsequent events and sort of subsumed by them. Though another thing that people are saying is dynasty, the dynasty word. Alex Bregman said, I don't like using the term dynasty, but quite a few other people, whether they're Astros fans or just media members, have been banding it about. I think that is a bit more fraught because that would encompass the sign-stealing title, but just in general, I don't know how useful a conversation the dynasty discourse is. I mean, it's yeah. it's almost like MVP conversations where it just devolves into, well, how do we define value? And now it's just, how do we define dynasty? It's like, they've been very good for a long time. I do think you have to era adjust your definition of dynasty, whatever it is, because no one is just going to win World Series every year the way that the Reds did or the Yankees did or insert your old dynasty here. And so merely being great every year in the regular season and getting to the playoffs and making six straight ALCSs, I mean, I guess that probably fits whatever modern definition of dynasty you could craft if you're not discarding the first title because of sign stealing. But I don't know. It's not that interesting a, a conversation to me. It's just like, well, what are our parameters and how many years and how many wins and how many playoff appearances and pennants and all that? We all know the results. They've been a very successful baseball team for quite a while now, second only to the Dodgers in the regular season.
2: Yeah, they're good.
0: They're good. Mm-hmm. They're good. But, However, oh. Can I try? Can I try one? I have. <laughs> yeah, I have I was a, gonna, but yeah, if you yeah. got a segue, go for it. I was it. gonna say, you know, one way that people can or teams specifically can try to improve their rosters to compete against clubs like the Astros is in free agency. Ooh,
1: okay, what? all right, yeah. I was gonna go with uh, Justin Verlander possibly. Oh, sure, yeah, that leaving works, due, I mean, that due to free deep. agency. No, yeah. yours was good. Yours okay. was fine. Thanks. Either way, we were thinking the same thing. Let's uh <laughs> let's talk about some free agents. And I guess we should briefly acknowledge one player who is not a free agent and who I imagine was a, a late scratch yeah. from the free late-ish, agent. ranking
2: Late-ish.
1: Yeah. late-ish. <laughs> That's Edwin Diaz, yeah. who was due to be a free agent, but instead signed quite a lucrative extension with the New York Mets. And thus he will not reach free agency. He signed a five year hundred two million dollar deal. That yeah. is a record for a with a no-trade clause and an opt-out after the third season and a six-year club option. So good news for Diaz, good news for Timmy Trumpet, I guess. Hopefully he gets a cut of this or some sort of record <laughs> deal in this deal. But when I saw that immediately, I was like, whoa, that is a ton of money for a reliever. And I guess I'm, I'm still thinking with the saber brain that's like, don't pay for relievers or whatever. But Edwin Diaz is if not the best reliever, perhaps the second best reliever behind maybe Emmanuel Classe. And I thought Dan Saborski put it well in his piece, which was basically like we're playing with funny money here, potentially. like yeah. I don't know that we need to even analyze the dollars here. Maybe we will. But... Dan wrote, I think there's a strong case to be made that you ought to be willing to overpay for an elite talent when there are a number of conditions. You're a contending team. Check. The money won't keep you from doing something else. Presumably. Check. The player is truly an elite at his position, and signing the player addresses a real team need. Check. Again. So... If we're operating under the assumption that Steve Cohen is richer than God and that signing Edwin Diaz to a 20 million something per year deal will not preclude him from going after whoever else or bringing back DeGrom if they want to or Nimo if they want to or targeting who knows who else if they're just going to go with a $400 million payroll or something then you don't even really need to talk about opportunity costs because the opportunity cost is to Steve Cohen's bank account and who cares about that
2: yeah i don't even think even if not all those factors are true it's not a wild overpay to like projected value if you give any benefit for the fact that he'll pitch higher leverage innings than average right. like mm-hmm. he's really really good yeah. and they're not paying him you know 35 million dollars a year for 10 years like it's a big contract Fur Reliever, it's the biggest contract ever, but that Fur Reliever is doing a lot of work there.
1: Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he's ridiculous. I mean, we we talked about it, like the fact that you can have a 1.31 ERA and be like, he underperformed his FIP. Right. <laughs> yeah. He's really good. Yeah. yeah he's That's really, ridiculous. Really like, very good. He, he has not always been that good. We have talked many times about the mystery of his 2019 season. Right. And then even his 2021 season was quite good, but not nearly at the level of his 2022. So, you know, relievers are variable and you pitch 60 innings a year and things can go wrong and you can serve up some meatballs. So, no guarantee that he is going to be. As dominant as he was this year, it would be difficult to repeat that performance, which is something you could say about other New York free agents we will probably be mentioning in a minute. But yeah, it remains to be seen whether Steve Cohen is just going to blow everyone out of the water for every potential free agent or whether there will be some fragment of wilpon where it's like, well, we got this guy and therefore we can't get that guy. But I don't get that vibe from Steve Cohen.
0: Yeah, and I don't know. Like I have said in the past like it would be to the sports benefit if the 20 if 29 other teams had to deal with like a Mike Ilitch type, but like a Mike Ilitch type signing better contracts cuz some of those were stinkers. Like we can I'm I'm happy when guys get paid, but some of those contract extensions in Detroit were like they were maybe not the best. But it is I think having to potentially contend with being outbid every time would Hopefully, raise everyone's level of spending a little bit. It's like, well, we might have to account for Steve. He's a wild one. Like, if he just doesn't care about the soft cap that we have and is like, fine, tax me, whatever. Like, I can <laughs> afford it. That changes the dynamic for the top end of the market. And then, if you get outbid for those guys, maybe you have to like spend a little more in the middle. Who knows? Mm-hmm. Could be good. All right. So
1: that is not one of the top fifty free agents. That is a New York Met Edwin Diaz. <laughs>
0: he timed it actually, I think, perfectly. Like if you're gonna do it pre-publication, do it like in the afternoon, like he did. Because then what happened was we saw it had come through and I was like, hey Ben, we gotta mm-hmm. we gotta move another guy up. And yeah, you have to write a blurb about him. And yeah, you have to write a Ben's take about one more guy on this list who ended up being Gene Segura, But like it was at a it was at a totally respectable time. No one was haggard. You know, didn't (laughs) Mm -hmm. happen at midnight. So you either need to do it when he did or like two days later, because then we can just say, hey, Edwin Diaz signed a big contract with the Mets. Congratulations to Edwin. He timed it just right.
1: Yeah. And man, I know we don't have to talk about the Kellnick trade in the context of Edwin Diaz of this deal, but we boy, can. the perceptions of that trade have shifted so dramatically, and the first impression that Edwin Diaz made in New York has been erased so thoroughly, it's just, it's kind of incredible. It, it makes you question whether we know anything, if we ever thought that we did, which I didn't, so I guess I don't have to question it, But <laughs> <laughs> but just don't be confident about anything, really, because... Kelnick can't miss, and look, this might not be the last time that we have to reevaluate that trade, right?
0: That's so nice of you to say about Jared Kelnick.
1: I still believe. <laughs> I still believe he can salvage some kind of career. And who knows? Like, maybe Diaz just goes pumpkin again, and, and Kelnick puts some stuff together, and Diaz has this big contract, and suddenly we're talking about things in a different way again. But, yeah, I mean, people were... Criticizing the Mets for quite some time, as if Jared Kelnick was a lock, which a lot of people thought he was and had some reason to think. Yeah, and we thought
0: that he far, was a top 100 prospect.
2: Yeah, a, a top, very tippy top. Yeah, top so top. I would argue that he was inarguably a top. Yeah, top 100 yeah, prospect.
0: he was. A, he was a top 10 prospect.
2: <laughs> yes, right. So that's I think, why they
0: play the games, Ben. Mm-hmm. Mm.
2: Yeah. So.
1: That that was weird, <laughs> I guess, is my only takeaway of that. Sometimes players can change their perceptions uh, multiple times, and yeah. you can always evaluate a trade based on what the multiple parties knew at the time, but the retrospective analysis of how it turned out, sometimes you got to wait a while, and maybe a little longer even than this. Anyway, the free agent class. How is it, Ben? How is this free agent class? What do you make of it?
2: So It's good. It's quite good. Last year's was also quite good, mm-hmm. and a lot of guys... From last year's are coming back this year, but these two have been a lot better than the years preceding it. Both in terms of the top is really good. Aaron Judge has had the best non-Barry Bonds season in my lifetime. He just yeah. finished that up. Mm-hmm. That's awesome. That's about as good of a you know platform year as anyone's going to have. Yep. And it's also quite deep. Like Gene Segura, do mention him again. Is our twenty fifth player on this list, and he's really good. He's he's a league average hitter who plays Gold Glove caliber defense at second base. That's pretty nice for the 25th best free agent on the market. It's both deep and deep in starting pitching. There were 20 starting pitchers in my top 50 uh, free agents. Hmm. I mean, I wouldn't be super pleased with some of the guys at the back end mm-hmm. if I'm counting on them for more than like a lottery ticket, but there's a lot of starting pitching. There's a bunch of good short at the top. You've got a, a real headliner in Judge. I think it's a great free agent class. And that, you know, as a result, there's a lot of teams looking for players because they've lost all these great players. Right.
1: And I hope, fingers crossed, that this will be a quote unquote normal off season. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> not it pandemic seems like it disrupted. <sighs> not lockout disrupted. I don't even want to forecast an optimistic vision of the future, but it does feel good.
0: (laughs) We are recording on Monday before the election, so you know, that that just seems realistic.
1: (laughs) (laughs) But keeping it specifically to the realm of sports, which as we all know, nothing to do with politics. Right, yeah. Completely separate, stick to sports, stick to baseball. Of course, always easy to do, neatly can divide those things. I think if we look at it in that context, much in the way that we were thrilled to be going into a season at all, Mm -hmm. (laughs) but also like not a dramatically delayed one, not a shortened one, not one with as many weird rules or lack of fans, etc. And it really was fun to watch just because it felt like such a relief and such a gift to have a season at all and a full length one. It sort of feels like that heading into the offseason, like maybe things will be back to some semblance of normality and we will not have to do podcasts for several months when there's zero baseball news.
2: (laughs) Yeah, I think I think this class is going to be good for that, basically.
0: Well, and Ben, you're you're sort of of the mind that while we will not see the level of activity we saw last November with like the artificial deadline of a lockout looming, that we are likely to see more early activity than in years past, right?
2: Yeah. So I'll preface this by saying, why would you listen to me on this? (laughs) I got it pretty wrong last year. But I I do think about baseball a lot. That's part of the job. And try to learn from my mistakes. And I think kind of everyone made that mistake last year. It's like no one told us that all these players were going to sign out of nowhere to get some certainty. But I think a lot of players who signed in November were just happy. Like, hey, I didn't spend a month doing a bunch of nonsense things that I didn't need to. I knew where I was going to go. What's the downside here? So I expect there'll be more of those this year than there have been in the past. It just makes a lot of sense. Like Knowing yeah. where you're going to live the next year earlier is better. And I don't think it really does anything strange to markets. You know, you have a lot of people that argue the longer you wait, the worse contract you get. Right. And I don't think that's obvious. I think you have to kind of control for what number free agent you are to sign you don't want to be mm-hmm. like the last person not sitting down in musical chairs mm-hmm. but if no one signs for a long time then musical chairs is a less good reference because the, the music hasn't stopped. stopped yeah there we go okay <laughs> actually great great analogy <laughs> here That worked. <laughs> but just largely speaking i think free agents will sign a little bit earlier this year because it seems like it's win-win
0: Does anyone strike you as a particularly good candidate to sign early, either because they're worried about being sort of on the outside looking in if they wait or because, you know, the fit is just so obvious as to where they might go?
2: Justin Turner signing with the Dodgers. I feel like could just (laughs) just happen whenever. And it wouldn't really surprise me too much. So he waited a long time last year.
0: I guess that's true.
2: Otherwise, I would have said Kershaw too, but he waited a while last year. Yeah, he was sort
1: of waiting to see if he'd be healthy last year, yeah. right? which I guess that's always a question with him, but maybe less acutely than it was last year. At right. This
2: time. So I think there's that's trickier. And I think last year he had, or at least the Dodgers talking about him, made me think there was some chance he would retire. Not high, but that doesn't seem likely this year. Yeah. But aside from Turner, I think some of the kind of mid-tier pitchers I'm talking about will sign early. Like if I'm Jose Quintana... I would like to sign at a place that tells me I'm going to have a good starting job like right away. Because so I think there's a lot of pitchers who are Quintana-esque who might uh, might take his spot otherwise and leave him in a position where he comes into a team where they were targeting Carlos Verdun and they didn't get him. And so they signed two kind of mid-tier guys and hope one of them works out. I think going to a place where they say, hey, you're going to be a good fit here, and that could be the Cardinals for him. It actually seems like he was a pretty good fit there, kind of with their defense, what they're trying to do, that he would just want to you know, rip off a Band-Aid and get it done early. I would have actually picked Edwin Diaz as a person to sign early, and I guess <laughs> worked out kind of well, <laughs> yeah. just because he's the only person of his class in the market, and so he can kind of set the market where he wants to, but he also would probably just as soon stay with the Mets was the vibe I got from him. And so that, that seems like a thing that could get done early in free agency where he says, everyone give me your best bids. Okay, like, Steve, do you want a match? Great, we're done. And I guess he basically just skipped all those steps. But <laughs> if if you're the only person of a class like Diaz is and like Aaron Judge is really, there, there's no Aaron Judge-esque player in this class, then you can just, you can negotiate when you want to. You can tell people, hey, I'm picking next week or, hey, I'm picking in February. And that's fine. They have no other options.
1: Well, I appreciated your musical chairs analogy, though I'm still going to wait for Scott Boris to weigh in with (laughs) the official description of (laughs) this year's free aging class and whether this offseason is like a regatta or whatever nautical analogy he chooses to use. However... I did want to say, because I didn't adequately praise the Phillies when we were talking about the World Series, and I will note that in my article, I did hand it to the Astros. I also, within the article, handed it to the Phillies as well and celebrated their run that they made, and I think they're kind of an argument in favor of going wild in free agency, right? And you could say that that the Padres are are that too, the opponent that they beat, I guess more so on the trade market than free agency, but a bit of both. But really, like the Phillies, they tried to do what the Astros did, right? And to... Felt Felt to some extent and <laughs> rebuild. Yeah. And it, it completely sputtered and stalled out and it looked like they weren't going to be good. And then they did the only thing they could do other than start over at that point, which is bring in Dave Dombrowski and have him spend some money, which they did. And it worked and it almost worked in the best possible way. It, it didn't work quite as well as it did for the 2019 Nationals, but... Within a couple games of working that well and really like they were no one's idea of ideal roster construction or like elegant team building or efficient spending or any of that but as it turned out like they needed really every last win and every last dollar that they spent and they are the walking proof of the old maxim about how you just have to get into the playoffs and after that anything can happen so much as I dislike the expanded playoff field if you're someone who enjoys playoff chaos then I think they were a fine argument in favor of it and they are also an excellent argument for spending and for signing some players who could potentially put you over the top because all you have to do is get there you don't necessarily have to be a great team you can still Beat great teams in October And of course they did it in an extremely Fun and exciting way but We should talk a little bit about the player Just at the top of this market I don't know if he dictates The direction of the market or whether He's just so singular (laughs) That there's no real Facsimile of him That we'll sort of be waiting to see where he Signs who knows but I'm talking About Aaron Judge who as You said coming off this amazing season And as you noted, like this free agent class could have been even richer than it was. Not just with Diaz, but Nolan Arenado, who we talked about, he very well could have been a, a great free agent, Adam Wainwright, et cetera. But judged on his own, just that's a ton of intrigue there. Where he will go, I know you don't know. No one actually knows, but the terms are pretty interesting to me, and no one knows what those will be either. But you did have to guess. And the fangraphs readers, the the crowdsourced audience, they also speculated. And so, What do you give a guy who is coming off one of the best seasons ever, but is also going to turn 31 in April and doesn't have the greatest health track record and no matter how good he is, almost can't be as good as he was this season. So you know that there's some amount of regression coming, even though when you factor in the regression, he still projects to be one of the very best players in baseball.
2: Yeah. I'm not certain that the number of years I projected Judge for is right. I projected him to get a nine-year contract at $35 million per year. I went more back and forth on the number of years than on the average annual value. And I know that's kind of a weird way to get at it, but I feel like players kind of think that way too. And you know that number is higher than Anthony Rendon's average annual value, which is kind of a target a lot of players seem to be shooting for. I think the crowd has had it a year shorter, but for slightly more. And I think that someone's going to give him on that order of contract. It, it kind of makes sense if you do some reasonable projecting based on his you know, now vastly improved 2023 projections. Right. He was really good this year, and that makes us improve our opinion of how good he is. You know, <laughs> that, that's just logical. If you can have a season this good, we should probably change how good we think you probably are true talent because he did a lot of things right that I probably thought, oh, he can't possibly put all that together in one year. Yeah. Clearly he can, and that that raises the likelihood he can do it again. He's going to hold up parts of the market, I think, just because there are a lot of teams who would like to sign Aaron Judge, obviously, but who, if they don't, can also sign a shortstop or something like that. And so he'll get to decide when he wants to sign. And the guys who are the runner-up prizes for Aaron Judge won't as much. I think that he's probably going to go back to the Yankees. I don't have any inside information of any type on that.
0: To be clear, if you do, we should stop recording so that you can go (laughs) right about your inside information.
2: (laughs) It just makes, it seems to me like it's very hard to leave New York when you get to be Aaron Judge in New York in this, like, you know, the brightest star at the center of the universe kind of way. Yeah, and it's hard for the Yankees to let him leave. Right.
1: I think just yeah. given the season he just had. I mean, they've they've let players walk away before. They let Robinson Cano leave to invoke another member of the Jared Kalnick trade. <laughs> but yeah. it
2: would be tough. It would be a big PR
1: egg on their face.
2: Yeah, after of, this uh, year yeah. too, mm-hmm. it just it seems very unlikely to me. And I know he's from out here. I, I've driven through the town where Aaron Judge is from. Mm-hmm. It's very nice. It's small. It's near San Francisco. But all, how did he fit in it? <laughs>
1: <laughs> <laughs> Jokes.
2: But I I just, I don't see him leaving the Yankees. I would personally enjoy watching Aaron judge a lot of times per year. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So to the extent that I have a, a, a horse in this race, I'd love to see him out here. Aaron, let me know. <laughs> you know I, but I just think he's going to stay with the Yankees. And I also think that kind of takes the Yankees out of the running for a lot of the shortstops who they would otherwise sign. And that, that kind of sets things up cleanly. They can go back to playing kinder Falefa and burying two prospects in the minors, you know. <laughs> doing whatever the Yankees do with shortstops.
0: Yeah, that was gonna be my next question. Like if we if we assume, again, not not knowing from an insider perspective, but just if we assume that he does leave, let's say he wants to be in the Bay Area, or let's say the Dodgers are just like, screw it, or Steve Cohen wants to make a big investment in a pointed kind of way, which is what <laughs> wooing Aaron Judge across town would would constitute. What do you think the odds are that the Yankees decide, you know, maybe we're not satisfied with Volpe and Peraza. Maybe we do want to play in the shortstop space. What do you think the odds are of that? And then maybe let's just use that as an opportunity to talk about the shortstop class more generally. So
2: I actually think that if the Yankees don't retain judge for whatever reason they don't want to or he wants to go somewhere else that the the player would make the most sense for them to sign is xander bogarts he's really good so that that's the key i think they'd want to sign somebody who's really good <laughs> that that's like the number one most important part by a lot i i care a lot less about positional fit than whether you can sign somebody who's really really like all-star level every year kind of good why would
1: you say something so controversial yet so great <laughs> <laughs> I,
2: I feel like I feel like people don't take that into account enough. They say, like, well, we've got a hole here. No. (laughs) Just look what the Phillies just did. You were just talking about it. Like, the real elegance is in realizing that you can transmute anything into wins. As long as you get a lot of it. Mm -hmm. And Bogarts fits that. But he also fits something else that is useful for them. Which is that in two years, he could play a different position in the infield. Very conceivably. And they could have these shortstop guys that they love. And that... Probably are good. I don't know. You know, it's hard to say. They could be Jared Kelnick. But they're probably good. And so I imagine it would feel kind of strange for them to not have Correa for this year, for 2022. So to have their stopgap, who they look. Isaiah Kinderfalefa is not as good as Carlos Correa. I'm just all the hot takes today. (laughs) So, like, but they they purposefully didn't go as big as they could have in the shortstop market last year. You
1: do, in fact, have to hand it to Isaiah Kiner-Falefa. <laughs>
2: Boy, I, you really don't want to not do that. I'll, I'll tell you that. Yeah, I, I have personal experience. <laughs> um,
1: <laughs> uh, it's a deep cut reference to the positional power rankings. If anyone's not Listen, following, we that one. just
0: got done editing and writing a really big thing. We can't think about another really big thing. That's unkind.
2: <laughs> yeah, but it would be very strange to have your stopgap for a year. And then sign the guy that you could have signed, who would have been really good. I don't think there's any question Correa was going to be good this year, and he was. But, like, then just actually sign him after skipping him for a year of his prime for no obvious reason. Like, the past is the past, and there's sunk cost fallacy that they should ignore. But I just can't see them doing that. Bogarts kind of fits what they profess to want to do, which is hand over shortstop to to one of these two young guys. And probably second and short to the two of them if everything pans out. While still being a part of the team in the future... They really don't need Josh Donaldson on that team. Yeah. Like, I understand why they did it, but they just, no one's going to be like, ah, Josh Donaldson's out of the lineup. How are we going to hit? And it probably wouldn't even be an issue because Bogarts is almost certainly going to play shortstop in 2023 unless one of the young guys comes up and is just dazzling and they say, all right, well, we're going to have a super infield defense kind of team. And so move him to third. I think that he makes the most sense for them. And, oh man, like, you know, that'd be fun to stick it to the Red Sox too. So you yeah. a little bit of a bonus there. I don't think that they're going to go crazy at the top end of the pitching market. Just doesn't doesn't seem like their MO. Like they did it with Garrett Cole and I don't. it doesn't strike me as likely that they're going to try to carry two of those guys given the rest of the roster. I think re-signing Jamison Tyone would make a lot of sense. I, I assume that he likes pitching there because they did a lot to change the way he pitches in a way that he seemed to really like and it made him better. So... If I were them, I would be trying to re-sign Tyone. And if I were Tyone, I mean, from all outward appearances, he likes pitching in New York, and definitely his pitching profile likes pitching there. Aside from the the fact that the park's tiny, but that happens to everyone. So the you know that that hits any pitcher who goes there. They shouldn't care about that. I think that he's a he'd be a good fit for the team. I think he's going to be kind of a hot commodity though. If you look at how he like, remade himself into a four-seamer guy. There's upside there. And so I I don't know if it'll be easy for them to re-sign him, but I think they'll look for kind of that tier of pitching talent and hopefully judge, but maybe someone else instead.
1: So we should talk about another top free agent from New York who presents sort of a, a thorny, complicated situation. Jacob deGrom, who is always older than I think he is, even though I've had that thought repeatedly, and you would think by now I would have adjusted my expectations for how old he is, but <laughs> nope, I haven't. He's 34. Wow, that's older than I thought he was, but he obviously presents a compelling case in that when he's healthy, he is the best pitcher in baseball. However, there is just constant anxiety about whether he's healthy and how often he'll be healthy and how he will age, etc. So what kind of deal do you imagine that he would seek or that teams would want to give him? I guess the shorter, the better from teams' perspective, probably. So where will that compromise come out?
2: I project the Grom to get the largest by-year contract in baseball history, and mm-hmm. I think that's not outlandish. It's a Max Scherzer-esque deal to a pitcher who is better when healthy than Scherzer. Mm-hmm. I'd say, inarguably, Pete DeGrom is a top five pitcher ever, probably. Mm-hmm. And Pete Scherzer's great, but he's not that, and he's also older going into the deal. So I I projected him for three years and forty seven million dollars. And if you think that forty seven million dollars is an exact projection based on my extreme baseball expertise and all that, <laughs> no. I mean, it's more than forty five. And each year, to be clear. Not in total. Uh, yes, $47 million <laughs> yeah. each year. So d- definitely the biggest average annual value of any contract in mm-hmm. sports history. I think that that's just the kind of contract that makes the most sense for DeGrom. They they say there's no such thing as a bad one-year contract. It's obviously not completely true. But <laughs> yeah. the signing idea... of to
1: one would be bad. Right. <laughs> or like
2: <laughs> signing... Let's say you wanted to sign Carlos Correa really badly, but you gave him one 300. I'd probably tell you like, you could just you know, same amount of money, but just get him for more years. But but I think the shape of contract shorter years, like two to three years for DeGrom, but a really big amount of money per year is just like a natural fit for a guy with his profile. You worry that if he gets hurt, you know, a few more times that he's not going to be the same. You worry that he won't be available. I would be very hesitant to sign DeGrom to a five-year contract or an eight-year contract. It's just it feels worrisome. He's not always making it through the season healthy, although he had been a, a model of health until recently. And he just throws too dang hard now.
0: Ben's been trying to tell him, you know, but he doesn't <laughs> yeah, listen to the listen podcast. To just slow down. Yeah. yeah. I assume he just cannot, you know, that's yeah. just not, that's yeah. just
2: not how it works. <laughs> but when he is available, he's the best, like you said, he's he's the best. And so you should be willing to pay a lot of money for that, especially because the teams who will be paying a lot of money for the Grom are good. The Orioles are not going to go sign Jacob deGrom and hope that that kind of catapults them from a 500 team to the playoffs. You know, the Reds aren't signing Jacob deGrom. Sorry, Orioles and Reds fans. But the teams that are signing him can both expect to have him for the playoffs, most likely, which is where pitchers of his you know, type have magnified importance because they can pitch two times in a five-game series or whatever. And also, that means your opponent doesn't have him. And the kind of teams you play in the playoffs are likely to be the kind of teams who would be signing Jacob deGrom if you weren't. It's so like if the Dodgers signed DeGrom, they're taking him away from the Mets and the Braves. I don't think the Braves would actually sign him. But if the Astros signed DeGrom, they're taking him away from the Yankees. Again, I don't think the Astros will sign DeGrom. But if you're a a team like that, you should want to both have this kind of best-in-the-game starting pitcher and not let your opponents have it. It's kind of a double win there. And that just works out to me to paying a bunch of money, but not for forever. Like, if you invest $250 million into Grom, and then he's hurt and doesn't play that much, that that feels a lot worse, regardless of how many years it's for, than if you invest 135. And so I just think that's where it's going to end up with a a really eye-popping average annual value, but a short number of years. And whether I'm right exactly on the number, I mean, no clue.
0: We had a lot of guys who were on last year's top 50 return to this year's top 50 which was weird and also caused some funkiness in some of our crowdsourcing results sorry everyone but um you know some part of that we can attribute to just how strange the free agent market was last year with the the impending lockout and guys wanting to sh- sign shorter deals that they could then revisit a year later and try to get something both longer term and more lucrative but i'm curious if you think there are any guys in this class who are are candidates for sort of that same deal not not guys like deGrom or even Verlander where you know they are they're older their injury concerns both they and teams might want to go year to year to see sort of what they're able to get uh, if they stay healthy and are able to pitch a bunch but guys who you know might look to do something surprisingly short and then and then sort of catapults a year or two later
2: yeah okay I'll give you a few of those so one that's kind of a strange one is Tyler Anderson Mm. And he's old. I mean, you know, baseball old, not real life old. He's younger right. than I am by a fair amount, but <laughs> he was bad on the Rockies. I'm not going to sugarcoat it. And the Dodgers, you know, changed the way he pitches somewhat, and he worked with them. And all credit to both sides. He was really good this year. I don't think he's going to get paid like that if he wanted to sign a five year deal. And he was a four win pitcher this year. He had a two five seventy ERA and pitched 180 innings. He was like incredible. And he's just not going to get paid like that. So if he thinks, hey, man, like I haven't made that much money in my career. I've I've made like nice money. I've made retire forever money, but I haven't made my kids are wealthy forever money. So why not just gamble, sign a one year deal and try to hit a really big payday next year? You know, try to be really good again this year, obviously. But uh, if he is, I think he could he could really hit it big next year because he was really good this year. And he was actually pretty good in 2021, too. He was already improving. So I think those are uh, like those kinds of players where you don't know if you believe what changed, but if you do, it's going to be great. Like Carlos Rodon last year is right. a great example of this where man, was he good in 2021 and man, did no one offer him a great deal. The White Sox <laughs> didn't even give him a qualifying offer. Yeah. yeah. That, that was,
0: a baffling. That was... <laughs>
2: <laughs> Yeah. I, I just, that was baffling, but I mean, Anderson is not that good, but that kind of player is the kind of player who should think about a short-term deal. Yeah. Taiwan Walker kind of a similar, I mean, much less, wow, explosive stuff than Anderson or Rodon. But same kind of idea where he looked a lot better this year. And if teams are trying to kind of bake in some uncertainty discount in his contract, if I were him, I'd just say, eh, you know what? What's the one-year deal look like? And let's talk about this again in a year. That aside, I mean, Michael Conforto? is that, yeah. is, that, is that cheating? No. I'd, I have no clue what's going to happen with Conforto. He hasn't played in a long time. I guess theoretically he'd want to rebuild his value with a one-year deal, but he also might just want to, like, get some cash. Yeah. I, I wouldn't hate that for him. And so I, I just don't have a good idea of his market at all, like, in either direction. Other than that, maybe the catchers. So Wilson Contreras, I don't think he's going to sign a one-year deal. But I have heard kind of scuttlebutt that a lot of teams want to try him in the outfield. Yeah. And, man, I don't I don't know if he's going to get the deal he wants if teams are seeing him as a kind of weakish defense outfielder slash DH slash first baseman. So that's a possibility. And then Omar Narvaez and Christian Vasquez. Catcher markets are always tough. yeah. And they could just say, there won't be any catchers next year either. And no one's giving me great offers. So why don't I just take a one-year deal and do this again next year? I, this actually hasn't happened as much as I thought. I kind of assume there should be a catcher premium. You can never get good catchers in free agency. Never, ever, 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 ever. And it's hard to get good catchers at all. And so when catchers of any skill whatsoever hit the free agency market, I always think teams will pay up because, I mean, I'm a Cardinals fan, so this hasn't really happened to me a lot, but I'm also (laughs) a baseball fan and I've seen a lot of teams. And it's always just like, oh my God, like who do we have a catcher? Right. It's like three guys and I don't even know who any of them are. And like all of them hit 180 with a 220 on base percentage. It feels to me like teams should pay up for any kind of catching certainty at all. And it hasn't really happened. Like, Jan Gump signed a two-year deal worth $13 million in total. He did not indeed cash in on the catcher premium. And I, I'm i not sure these guys will either. But if I were them, I'd be willing to take a short-term deal to bet on it.
1: Yeah, Jeff Passan reported after the World Series was over that Dusty Baker evidently had nixed a trade that the Astros were working on where they would have acquired Wilson Contreras and... Cubs would have gotten what Jose Urquidy were yeah. a package centered on him and I, I saw some Astros fans like damn it Dusty like we should have made that deal it's like maybe but you just won the World Series like, <laughs> they, <laughs> I think like don't want to mess with anything like but you don't want any kind of
2: Shouldn't it say, great work Dusty Baker you kept the yeah. Jose Urquidy and also won the World Series yeah, yeah. exactly
1: right yeah and you don't want to mess with any butterfly effect here that, that could have happened something different if Urquidy had not been there and Contreras had I mean before the fact, sure, you could say maybe that would have been a good move. Maybe not, but after the fact, I think you probably have to be pretty content with the way things worked out. How much more money will Trey Turner get because he has a hype video narrated by John Hamm? <laughs>
2: you know, I haven't watched it yet. I've heard it's excellent.
0: <laughs> I heard that John Hamm says FanGraphs in it and also F4. So now, now we Ooh, get to
1: that should be your ringtone or something. If yeah. You still have <laughs> ringtones. That's yeah.
0: Cool. Huh. What a nice treat.
2: There's no doubt Trey has become one of the best position players in the game today. You need some facts to back it up? Since 2019, he's been the second best position player in baseball, according to Fangraphs, with
1: 20.1 more. Don Draper saying Fangraphs. Isn't Don him a Cardinals fan? It's just he is. Yeah. Famously. like a weird, yeah, what's up with that? I guess he lives in L.A. Yeah, he's, he's a actor. He reads lines that do not reflect his, his personal beliefs. That's what acting is, I suppose. I assume it was a paid gig and not just fandom of, of Trey Turner. Anyway, what about your guys in this class, if you have any? Is there anyone who you think might be a better value than The Consensus? Or I guess the opposite, someone you're wary of, but someone who if you're investing your funny free agent hypothetical dollars, you would be eyeing more so than you would be eyeing other players who are perhaps in a, a comparable class.
2: Well, if any team wants to sign me to, you know, actually allocate their real money. As GM, to be clear, team, if yes. you're listening, um, hit me up. Yeah. Uh,
1: no entry-level positions.
2: Not underscore Ben, underscore Clemens. Uh, yeah. DM's are always open. Yes. <laughs> okay, I'll give you three guys who I think could return better value, and one who I think is being overrated by the broader community of people doing this.
1: And then tell me which minor league free agents you would sign. <laughs> <laughs>
2: so, so I would... Um, I really, really, really like... Taylor Rogers, relative to the consensus, <laughs> just Taylor Rogers has been a really good reliever for a number of years. Taylor Rogers was not even a bad reliever this year. He had a lousy September, just like an absolutely gobsmackingly lousy September for the Brewers. But I mean, people think he was bad on the Padres. He was not bad on the Padres. He ran a 3.33 BABIP and a 60% left-on-base rate, both of which are just now wildly bad. Uh, and despite that, had a two thirty four FIP. I, mean, I guess that's not despite that. That, but if you strip that out, he was really good. He was really good last year. He was really good in twenty twenty. Like he was really good in twenty nineteen. He was really good in twenty eighteen. He just seems like an obvious nice reliever. Bulk up the back end of your bullpen just easily. And I don't know. People think that you know he gave up some home runs, so he's bad now. It just it doesn't make that much sense to me. So I've seen that people think he's a borderline top fifty free agent. That's wild to me. If you could sign him for that kind of money, just do it. One that I'm like not going to harp on too long, because I've already talked about it a little bit, is Tyler Anderson. I think mm-hmm. he's good. And if if he would take one of these like discounted deals, you should sign him to that because I, I think he's actually great now. He does yeah. this. Take thing. all the Tylers and Taylors. Yeah. <laughs> he does Den Clements. I'll put him on the Angels just to, just <laughs> <Yeah>. for <laughs> your guys' <laughs> maximum enjoyment. <that. laughs> so Tyler Anderson throws not just two different fastballs, but from two wildly different arm slots. So against lefties, he's like a side-arming sinker, cutter, uh, like slider guy. And then against righties, he's more over the top. And he actually throws his cutter from the same position as his fastball to both sides. So if he's throwing his sinker, he throws it like five feet off the ground. And if he's throwing his four four-seamer, he throws it six feet off the ground. And he mirrors his cutter to that. And that's really cool. He started doing it last year and has really leaned into it this year. And I think that actually makes him a lot better than he was before because he's now just two different pitchers. And, you know, he's the platoon maximizing type against lefties, the uh, like low arm slot sinker slider. And then he's the platoon neutral guy against righties, you know, the the kind of high arm slot four seam changeup type. And that's really cool. I guess it's more cutter than changeup, but he's got a bunch of pitches is the point. And his ability to kind of mix and match those, I think is really valuable and not easy to pick out from the numbers. Teams will pick this out, obviously. They're they're no dummies. But I think that his particular mix of pitches is very useful. I think I said slider when I was talking about him and met cutter, but uh, the point remains like (laughs) the way that he changes his pitches to opposite handed batters, I think makes him play up relative to what you'd look at from his stuff. And he was really good this year. So I would try to get him. Lastly, for people I think will kind of outperform is Brandon Nimmo, and maybe I'm just low on the Nimmo contract. I'm higher than the crowd, and I'm higher than most people i have seen, but he's an above average defensive center fielder with a career on base percentage that is just absolutely outrageous. He's 30. He's not super old. He just had a five-war season, and it didn't look fluky, right? Like, he ran a 317 BABIP. It wasn't anything outrageous. He's just really, really good, and he's really good in a way that looks sustainable. He has enough power that you can't just try to throw things by him. He doesn't swing and miss a lot. He takes a ton of walks and sprints to first base afterwards. Uh, he's not like a an albatross in the bases. There's just a lot to like there, and it, it's hard to get players like that who can play a credible center field and provide credibly plus offense, and most of those guys are household name superstars. Like, Is he that different than George Springer? Mm, like I don't, I don't really see him being that different than George Springer, and George Springer got a bag coming out of COVID. He got six one fifty. Yeah. Like I think I'd like this Nimo as much as I'd like that Springer, and I don't know. He's just not being valued that way. So if you can get him with that kind of number, I like it. A guy who I'm down on, and I, I don't like being down on because I like <laughs> the guy quite a lot is Josh Bell.
0: Mm. Yeah, you and Bauman were ready to fight over Josh Bell.
2: Yeah, <laughs> former former member of Josh Bell's book club, because I, I think he stopped doing it. Uh, that was when he was on the Nats. <laughs> I would still be a current member if I could be. It, it was really cool. It was during COVID, and I really like hearing him talk about books. He would go on a Zoom with all of us and talk about books once a month.
0: so cool. Yeah,
2: it was very awesome. So there's a lot to like about Josh Bell. One thing not to like is that there are better first basemen. I don't quite believe that Josh Bell is the Josh Bell of the first half from this year. He looked kind of bad on the Padres and he just hasn't had a sustained run of success where he's better than an average bat first baseman. That just feels like the kind of player who falls into the muddle and teams can replace a lot of it with minor leaguers and where I just don't feel good about giving somebody a long-term deal at first base like that. I'd much rather have Anthony Rizzo, for example, and I've seen a lot of contract projections for Bell that are in the Rizzo territory. And I don't know, man, like you're going to have a hard time convincing me that that makes the most sense. Again, like, I could definitely be wrong on this one. It's just, I am not a big believer in these, you know, first base corner outfield types with not outstanding bats. Maybe he's just a, maybe you just sign him to play DH and he's JD Martinez, but better. But I just feel like the track record's not there for me to believe that he's, like, if you told me for sure he'd be 20% above average offensively next year, I would say, like, yeah, okay, like, fine, let's do it. But I <laughs> don't think that's, like, for sure locked in. I I don't think that it's obvious to me that he's going to be that good. And if it's not, then it doesn't make a lot of sense to me because he's not going to come super cheap, I don't think, for someone with no positional flexibility whatsoever.
0: Yeah. Mm-hmm.
1: Well, There are a few more days for teams to talk to their own free agents. I'm curious to see what happens with Justin Verlander, for instance, whom, as we've heard, he wants to pitch until he's 45. I doubt a team is going to give him a contract through his age 45 season. As you noted, it may be more of a a Max Scherzer, but perhaps even shorter kind of deal. So there are some interesting ones. There's Senga, of course, coming from NPB, and I'm always fascinated by the deals that those guys get and how their stuff will translate. So We'll be talking about free agency pretty much nonstop because it will actually be a thing (laughs) this (laughs) offseason. So that's nice. And as of November 10th, it will be a free agent free-for-all. And anyone can, can sign anywhere at any time. So there will be lots to discuss. And perhaps we will discuss it again with Ben. He will certainly be writing about it for FanGraphs and tweeting about it, as he noted on Twitter at underscore Ben underscore Clemens. And maybe we will have you back for the minor league free agent draft. I I guess it, ben, it's all. I don't mean, be a
0: coward. Let's go.
1: It's all upside, I guess, for us now because yeah. he cleaned our clock so completely in his first attempt. That really like he's already established his dominance, and all that can happen in the next go round is that maybe he doesn't do so well, and then it, it looks like the first year was just a fluke. He got lucky. Uh, it's yeah. not actually his I true talent. I am hoping you guys don't
2: invite me back. Like I, I obviously can't <laughs> turn it down. That would just be just retire. Just bat be... flip. Just walk away. <laughs>
0: uh, wait, we will not be cowards, and you can be busy. That's fine. Like both of those things are. It's fine. You know, if we we're going to shirk from from strong competition. We want to we wanna beat the best to prove we are the best, Ben. Well, I can
2: give you my secret. I can yeah. tell you exactly what I did last year. You, really?
0: d- you drafted Jose Iglesias? <laughs>
2: hey, <laughs> helped, hey, I drafted a lot of other the players only. too. <laughs> <Yeah>. You did. <laughs> but I just, I looked at the list from Baseball America okay. and then I just like looked at all the players on Fangraphs and I was like, oh, that <laughs> guy seems good. And that guy doesn't seem good. And then I just made a list of yeses and maybes and I just picked from them somewhat arbitrarily after that. <laughs> So it was not like rocket science, but it did take a few hours. Like there's a lot of players. Hmm. Yeah,
1: you got to be willing to to crunch some tape and and do some work on these <laughs> things. Tape. I guess. Yeah, so, that definitely <laughs> happened. <laughs> so you used your own website that you work for and the resources there, and sounds sounds unfair. I don't work for Fangraphs. Can I even look at Fangraphs? Is that even available to me?
2: Uh, I, I
0: should I have asked John Hamm.
2: I should admit there was a guy on a trash can during the draft. Banging on the trash can when it was my turn to pick to let me know that it was my turn to pick.
0: Oh, oh. scandal! A Sorry.
2: guy from the future came back
1: to <laughs> <laughs> bang the can. All right, court. Well, we're, court. we're giving you months of warning here, so if you say that you're too busy to do it, I won't really believe you. So I, I guess if we do invite you, you do have to kind of come on and defend your title. That sounds good to me. Okay, it's a date. We just don't know which date yet. Thank you, Ben.
2: <laughs> yeah, thanks for having me, guys.
1: Okay, I will leave you with one last bit of World Series-related content, courtesy of our Pass Blaster, Jacob Pomeranke, because this is indeed the Pass Blast for episode 1926, and it comes from 1926 and also from Jacob, who is Sabre's Director of Editorial Content and Chair of the Black Sox Scandal Research Committee, and he said he was already considering using this for 1926. And then what happened in game four of the series cemented his decision. So he titles this 1926 the first World Series no-hitter. Don Larson's name was mentioned a lot last Wednesday, but 30 years before his famous perfect game in the 1956 World Series, a Negro Leagues pitcher by the name of Claude Red Greer made history first by pitching a no-hitter in Game 3 of the 1926 World Series between the Backrack Giants of Atlantic City and the Chicago American Giants, the pennant winners of the two major black baseball leagues that season. Here's how John Howe of the Pittsburgh Courier described the action that day. Sent to the showers ignominiously in the second inning of the second World Series game, Claude Red Greer, left-handed hurling ace of the backrack Giants of Atlantic City, came back with a vengeance at Maryland Ballpark this afternoon in the third series game and sent the Westerners down to a 10 nothing defeat. In the course of the nine innings, the Jersey Shore pitcher did not allow the visitors from the Windy City a single hit, and in the carrying out of this sacred duty, he fanned eight. His victory evened the count in the series. As did the Astros in Game 4, I would note, although in this case, it was Game 3, so if you're wondering, well, how did a Game 3 outcome even the series? Game 1 was a tie. Actually, Game 4 would turn out to be a tie, too. Ties. They're okay. They're better than the zombie runner. I repeat, his victory evened the count in the series and sent thousands of backrack rooters into high-geared happiness. Greer breezed through the last three innings easily. He walked five men just to see how it felt to pitch an epic game and take a few real chances in the bargain. In addition to pitching an almost perfect game, Greer also had a perfect day with the stick, recording three hits and a walk. And Jacob concludes, Red Greer's no-hitter even made headlines in major white newspapers like the Chicago Tribune and Philadelphia Inquirer. Despite their historic loss in Game 3, the Chicago American Giants rallied to win the Negro League World Series over Atlantic City five games to four in the best of nine series. So the series actually went 11 games with the two ties, not saying that we should have ties in the World Series. Please play to completion. Jacob also notes that the next year in a World Series rematch in 1927, Greer's teammate Luther Red Farrell pitched another no-hitter for the Backrock Giants in Game 5, and the American Giants again came back to win their second consecutive title five games to three. These were the only two no-hitters ever thrown in the Negro League World Series, which was played until 1948. And you know who played in that 1948 Negro League World Series? a 17-year-old kid named Willie Mays, who will be the subject of our next episode. All right, that's a season wrap on 2022. Thanks for listening all year long with us, and thanks for continuing to listen. By the way, after we finished recording, Angels GM Perry Minasian said that Shohei Otani would start the 2023 season with the Angels, that he would not be traded over the offseason. So I suppose while we're speculating about free agents, we don't really need to speculate about Otani trades, though I will note that the Angels are in the process of being sold. So if a new owner comes in and says, actually, we are trading Shohei Otani, and perhaps I'm hiring a new GM, then I guess Perimanazian wouldn't be the one in charge of making that decision. But I don't know that that will happen on a short enough time frame for Otani to be traded. And why would you buy the Angels and then trade Shohei Otani? I mean, I can think of some reasons, but if I were going to buy the Angels, it would be because of Shohei Otani though my motivations may not be the same as the highest bidder for the team. Hey, by the way, quick PSA, if you are listening to this and you're eligible to vote in the American midterm elections and there's still time for you to do that, go do it. We'll be doing it. We encourage you to do it. We encourage everyone to do it. Go uphold democracy. It needs our help these days. You can put us in your ears and we will come to the polls with you. Just put on one of our back episodes, or maybe we'll have another episode out by the time polls close. We'll keep you company. Vote, vote, vote. And when you're finished supporting American democracy, you can also support this podcast on Patreon. Only slightly less important, you can just go to patreon.com effectivelywild. The following five listeners have signed up and pledged some monthly amount to help keep the podcast going, help us stay ad-free, and get themselves access to some perks. John, not John Ham, I don't think, though it is spelled J-O-N. Henry Johnson, or possibly Henri Johnson. Kyle W., Ryan Young and Evan M thanks to all of you and you know while we'll still be stat blasting all winter long our baseball reference sponsorship of the stat blast segment is suspended for the offseason they sponsored us through October they may resume that sponsorship next year, we will see. We were happy to have them as partners and would be happy to have them again. But for now, no sponsorships at all. We rely solely on our Patreon supporters. And our Patreon supporters in exchange get access to monthly bonus episodes. Our exclusive Discord group for patrons, nearly 900 of you in there. The stove will be simmering in the Discord group all winter long. Plus you get discounts on merch and ad-free Fangraphs memberships and more. Go check it out. We can only do this podcast year-round because of our Patreon patrons. You can also contact me and Meg via email at podcast.fancrafts.com You can join our Facebook group at facebook.com slash group slash effectively wild. You can rate, review, and subscribe to Effectively Wild on iTunes and Spotify and other podcast platforms. You can follow Effectively Wild on Twitter at EWPod. And you can join or at least browse and lurk at the Effectively Wild subreddit at r slash effectively wild. Thanks to Dylan Higgins for his editing and production assistance today and all season long. We will be back with another episode extremely soon. Talk to you then.